Hi, this is Eric Corey Freed. And Eve Blossom. And this is Care by Design. This week on Care by Design, we talk with Bob Safian, who is the host of the new podcast for Masters of Scale called Rapid Response. I met Bob years ago when he was editor at Fast Company Magazine, and today we discuss current times and the new podcast that focuses on crisis response, agility, and leadership in fast-changing situations. Enjoy. Bob, is it a delight to have you today on Care by Design? Well, thanks for inviting me to be here. I'm excited. Bob, we met years ago when you were the editor at Fast Company, and I've always loved your incredible point of view and your ability to see trends in business, in culture, and what the future might look like. Your new podcast, Masters of Scale Rapid Response, is focusing on crisis response, agility, and leadership in fast-changing situations. How are you finding the medium of a podcast and how you compare how would you compare that uh, medium to your past experience in print? Listen, I love print. The artifact of creating and designing something in print is extremely satisfying for me, but I also recognize that it is not the wave of the future in the way a coming generations are engaging with content. And for me, I, I began dabbling with a podcast in part because it's where I saw the most creative executions of journalism and other content creation. Uh, you know, for a time, I thought magazines was the place to do that. That's part of the reason why I spent so much time so much in my career in magazines. And then it was sort of websites. And now I, I feel like a lot of that experimentation and um, risk-taking is happening in audio. And audio is a, a great format for engaging and connecting with an audience. We're, we're in the room together with folks who are listening and thanks so much for listening in and joining our party, that's great. You know, it's hard to build an audience. The business side of podcasting is complicated, but from a, from a creator's point of view, it's a very intimate medium. And there are things about it that are simpler than other mediums. It crystallizes things. I mean, I think it is, in many ways, it is a, a perfect medium for this year when we have all been sort of stripped bare a little bit. You know, you're having Zoom meetings with people, people you've never met before. You're inviting them into your home for the first meeting. You never would do that before. And I think podcasting is a, a version of that. You're just getting that instant intimacy. So rapid response, the podcast, it was not particularly planned. I was working with the folks at Masters of Scale, helping them put together their episodes, which are terrific. The sound design in them is very intense, and it takes the many weeks of pulling together the right script and the right cameos. Um, they're beautifully crafted uh, pieces of artwork. But that was very difficult to do in a time period where things were changing so fast. How did we talk to our audience on a real-time basis? And so that's where Rapid Response came from. And it's sort of served to scratch an itch for me that I have, as, as you know, I have always felt about this idea that the world we're moving into requires a different kind of agility and nimbleness than the one we were trained for. Certainly 2020 has put that into perspective for all of us. And so we're all having to learn how to stay on our toes and accommodate and get used to a level of 
ambiguity that you know some folks were comfortable with before, and we all realize that we have to increasingly get comfortable with. The health situation and the pandemic is part of that. Technology has been part of that for a long time. That's what change does. I love change. It's easy to say that when you're an agent of change. Change is also terrible and hard and painful. And this is the balance that that we live in. The idea of change as being something that's good or bad, I have often had people come to me and say, why do you talk about change so much? It seems like you love change so much. And and in part, I do like change because I like new things, but I'm also a realist that change is coming. And whether you like it or you don't like it, it's there. That's what I'm helping my listeners, my readers, you know, and then other folks that I talk to, we're trying to help each other try to figure out. One of my frustrations about healthcare and the healthcare conversation, particularly in this country, is that it's not really about the care. It's about the system, the payments, the money, the way the dollars flow. And sort of that becomes the first conversation. I'm not going to say that Medicare for all is or isn't a good thing or single payer system one way or the other, but all of that is just about how it gets paid for. And when you start with that, I think it can distort the kind of care that we get and the kind of care that's possible. And if instead you start from you know, what is the outcome that you want? And you build a system from that point of view, who knows what the costs are because we haven't even tried to do that, right? And then maybe you worry about how to pay for it, but how do we deliver the results, the impact? There's other products that are out there in the world. We don't think about them that way. We think about them as how does this help? What does this end user want? When Jeff Bezos is talking about how he's building Amazon. He's saying, what do my customers want? How do I make their lives easier? How do I make their lives better? I think healthcare professionals certainly are motivated to do that. But systemically, to your point, we haven't thought about how to design this interaction, these goals, how we mesh new technologies and new ways of operating. We all need care of all kinds, all the time. We just don't think about it that way. No, we're not starting from a clean enough slate to be able to, to envision what it might be. I've been asking clients and um, I guess startup people, in the last five years, what has been the biggest driver of your digital transformation? And it's a bit of a staged question because really the biggest driver has been not something they chose, but rather COVID happening, right? Forcing their workforce to go remotely. And it, 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 see, it seems like the premise of a bad joke that, gosh, all we needed for ubiquitous Zooming was a pandemic to make it happen, right? You've often referred to yourself as an optimist. I've seen you say that about yourself multiple times. I'm curious, is that still the case after 2020? And if so, where does this come from? Because there's this recurring theme of you being a listener and you know really keeping your ear to the ground and listening is that where it comes from? And are, are you still as optimistic as normal, more optimistic than ever? How are you feeling after all of this? Optimism is a choice. There are other things, certainly, that I'm, I'm using or choosing signals, finding signals for. Optimism is something that I, that I choose. I, I want to live in a world that's more optimistic. And so 
I choose to look for things that are more optimistic out of whatever the challenges and the situations are. That's the world I'd rather live in. Optimism is a is a great motivator. You know, I listen, I've I've worked for for different people who had different styles about how they tried to motivate me. I worked early in my career for someone who was a bully and, you know, used fear. And I found that fear was a terrifically motivating factor. You know, like you can get people to do a lot through fear and anger, but it's, it's not fun and it's hard to be creative in that environment. And, and I think in an environment where we're more hopeful opens up more possibilities for us to solve problems and challenges in ways that we hadn't conceived of before. So that's really how, how I think about it. There are plenty of things about 2020 that get me bummed out. It has, not, it has not been an easy year. I have a lot of difficult moments and I, I do spend time saying like, what, what is the purpose of this moment? How do we use whatever assets and leverage and opportunities that we have to have impact in a meaningful way in this environment. And that's very hard when sometimes the answer is stay at home by yourself and don't do anything. That signal is a very difficult one to absorb and take when your inclination is toward action. But I always find that with myself, like being patient is the hardest thing for me. I always want to do, I want to create. And I know that what really makes the most sense often is to stop and wait until there's clarity. And then once there's clarity, then move aggressively and quickly in that direction. You don't want to be running from place to place and be exhausted when the opportunity that is most important presents itself. I think of care and that resiliency as integrated in a, a must at these times, especially this optimal resiliency. And with all your interviews on masters of scale, rapid response and with leaders, who have to respond quickly to these accelerated, changing, and unprecedented times. What are you hearing about how these leaders are creating optimal resiliency? Well, I think, I think some of the resiliency they're finding in themselves, uh, I think some they're finding from each other um, and from their colleagues and the folks they, they work with. I mean, I, I do think there is plenty of inspiration out there of folks who have been able to do extraordinary things, sometimes that extraordinary effort is in service of taking care of others. Sometimes it's just making an adjustment in the way your own business works. You know, I didn't know everyone could move to working remote so quickly, and that inspires you to realize, well, what else can we get done that we never realized we could get done, right? Though I think those those motivations are there. I would I'll say that. In talking to the leaders in the Rapid Response podcast, one of the themes that is fresher, that I had not heard in the same frequency and with the same attention as before, is the attention to, to mental health. You know, and, and that mental health not necessarily having to be equated with mental illness at the other end of it, but having a, a balanced enough framework to be able to be effective in your work, you know, recognizing the impacts of stress and burnout and worry and how all of that, that goes on, yes, in our heads, we know it's in our heads, that doesn't make it any less 
real, right, or, or any less impactful. And I think the best leaders are working on that. They're seeing it. They're struggling with it a little bit because it's not necessarily the kind of leadership that they were trained to deliver. It's not necessarily the kind of leadership that was rewarded in the past in the same way. Maybe it should have been, but it wasn't necessarily. And I think that's that's the sort of among the frontiers that all of us are learning to accept and hopefully getting better at is how to how to get our mindset, our mental state to be in the most effective place. And I find it fascinating to see what resiliency is coming and how the story is unfolding in front of us and what we know and what we don't know. Fascinating, right? Yeah. And it, it, you know, it's such a good point. It's, there's this strange balance that we're having to accommodate for ourselves, right? One is that things are changing constantly. We're learning new things. There are things we don't know, like everything is up in the air at the same time, really, even though it seems like this has been going on forever. And so part of the resiliency is not to get fatigued about something that feels like a crisis and yet may just be a state of being. And so you're, you're, you're balancing, again, this urgency to like react to what's happening right now. And at the same time, keep in mind, it's a long game. When I was younger, I had a running coach uh, and I used to do some a longer distance running. And I would have this discussion with him about, you know, well, do you pace yourself like a marathon, you know, for the long run? Or do you run fast like a sprint, right? And he said, you run as fast as you can for as long as you can. It's like, you have to do it both. You have to do everything. That's the way we learn, or the, you know, that's the way we get the optimal performance. But of course, none of us can run at our fastest all the time. And if all you're doing is sort of, you know, keeping at a regular pace, you're going to get past, right? You're going to miss things. So, you know, this is another one of the, the balances that we, that we have to live through. I think about the choices that we, if we're fortunate enough, that we get to make in our lives. And essentially what this period is, has shown us is like, there were things that we thought we had to do that we actually didn't have to do. You had a 12-year tenure running Fast Company, and in that time, you really focused it towards innovation. And the time period that you presided over was an interesting one for Silicon Valley and for the country. It was um, growth of social media, for example, occurred in that time period. And by the way, it's also, it's also impressive you know that you've made it when you announcing that you're leaving your job makes national news, by the way. So congratulations on that. But five years ago, I watched a, a talk that you gave and you laid out seven predictions. Do you remember this from 2016-ish? I, I don't know which predictions you're going to point to. So let's see how I did. <laughs> well, these are, these are larger predictions and, and they were chaos will rule, speed matters, the company of the future, doesn't really exist. Mobile is the new steam engine, which I think you nailed it. Uh, tech will improve the human condition. Mission trumps money. And then the last one, by the way, there are no rules. Do you, do you remember these? Yeah, yeah, it sounds, it sounds a little bit like me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess my question for you is, how have the rules changed in a world where there are no rules for the upcoming entrepreneur or the upcoming startup owner at this time? Is it they need to listen more, they need to be more empathetic, or is it still the same rules as before where you have to be nimble and open to pivot? Yeah, I mean, I like emphasizing that there are no rules because, well, first of all, we're all wrong all the time. And everyone wants an answer. So they want someone else to tell them, here's how you get to whatever your promised land is, right? And I think everybody's promised land is a little different. And what works in one place doesn't work in another place. And just because Apple is great and Steve Jobs did this doesn't mean that doing that is going to work in a hospital or when you're running a, an energy company, right? Like it, every every situation is in some ways its own um, its own unicorn. And so the 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 lessons that I try tried to highlight or what I put as predictions it is as much about you know sort of mindset shifts I think as as it was about practical what you need to do. Obviously, in that, you know, I mix some things in. I do think mobile was a, a fuel for a lot of things, and I think it will continue to be. And, you know, there are a lot of things that happen in the background. You know, the first time someone used the word cloud to me to describe where the internet was, I was like, cloud? Like, what, what are you talking about? No one's ever going to use that term. No one's going to know what it means. You know, well, I was wrong about that, right? I mean, cloud is now we're, we're all living in the cloud, even if we're not necessarily recognizing that that's where we're living, right? This conversation is happening in the cloud. And I think we're still in the early stages of the ways that that kind of development can change to, to hark back to, to care, to health care. You never used to see your doctor like this. Now we're seeing our doctors by Zoom through video calls in much higher numbers because we're afraid to go into the office, but actually it's a much more efficient way to do it. And there's so many other things that are going to be able to be done more efficiently through these digital tools. And in many cases, the tools already exist. Just wishing things are true doesn't make it true. And even when you have some information, that information can be wrong until the body of knowledge builds. We didn't know right away that this virus was aerosolized, was airborne, that masks were the key you know, factor for keeping the spread down. Once we did, that changes everything. Having real data, real information, sort of facts that you can work with, and that then that allows creativity to happen. Designers often say like a constraint is the most valuable thing in, you know, in coming up with, with solutions and, and new ideas. What are the constraints? The facts give you the constraints, um, what we do with them, where we go next. That's up to each one of us and, and our own creativity. The first cover story I did at Fast Company was with Mark Zuckerberg. It was his first magazine cover. And that's something that I am both proud of and terrified by at the same time. You know, I think, I think Facebook and social media have been unstoppable forces, and that's why we wrote about them. But there have been too many poor consequences from not seeing around corners and not being vigilant about what the impact of, of these, you know, new communications platforms would be. 
and you know we're we're certainly not at the other end of that yet there's still a, a lot of road still to come um when you create things that are new there are great things that happen and there are terrible things that happen and it's it's not the technology it's how we use it and you know we're still on training wheels and learning how to use a lot of these tools but on that point bob you also had um on the cover a whole story about flux and some of the examples of people out there that were doing incredible things uh, like DJ Patil, Raina Kumra, Baratunde Thurston. Uh, and, and I know you've been following their careers. Uh, you know, so you didn't do just Mark Zuckerberg on the cover. You did all these amazing people on the cover who are doing really great social impact work and having a huge um, long-lasting positive impact. Are you, I'm sure you're following their careers. Yeah, I, I, and I've become friends with some of those people. I'm, I'm so impressed by the way they've dedicated their lives to, you know, to making a difference. I mean, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, DJ Patil, who became the chief U.S. data scientist in the White House, the first and only right person to, to, hold, to hold that post. And, you know, he's been spending a lot of time in recent months helping the state of California try to manage its its COVID challenges in an appropriately data-informed way. Folks like that inspire me because they are really getting their hands dirty in things that are difficult. I'm just writing about it. I get to talk about them, but I, I'm, you know, I'm not I'm not having to live in the frustrations and the hard parts of that all day the way they are. And and that's why those characters inspire me. I think also when you mention those community of folks that that we would write about at Fast Company, you know, every business should be clear about what its purpose is, what its role is, right? And, and at Fast Company, we always said that our purpose was to, you know, help prepare our readers for a future that was coming faster than ever. And part of that future was a recognition demographically a broader group of folks. And so if we were going to prepare our readers, our audience are for that future, we wanted to represent those communities in the people we covered. That was a, you know, a, an editorial decision that, that we made. And it's, it's similar to what we do at Masters of Scale, where we are trying to represent the future of what the world is going to look like. These overlooked and often underappreciated communities have tremendous talent and tremendous insight that you know we do ourselves a disservice if we don't if we don't tap into. I think and I hope that the the more fluid technological workplace will allow broader communities to access work and talent to be able to access be accessed from uh, different kinds of places. You know, provided that the digital divide that continues to plague us is addressed and all communities have equal access to that, you know, that world. But I did an episode on the podcast with uh, Drew Houston, the CEO of Dropbox, and they announced a, what they call a virtual first policy, which is you're never going to go back into the office at Dropbox, you know, to work at your desk. You'll go back into a workspace to work collaboratively with people, but individual work will never happen at a desk that you have at a Dropbox office ever again. 
And there are all kinds of changes in that and challenges. But one of the big opportunities Drew talks about is that means that we can have talent anywhere in the world. We don't have to just have talent that's in, you know, high price, expensive San Francisco or New York. We can have talent from anywhere. And, and that opportunity is exciting. I think that's exciting and I think it's appropriate. And, and you know, you never know where the solutions of tomorrow are going to come from. Absolutely, which is why it's really important that accessibility to this technology and the digital divide goes away for these reasons. And listen, in digital divide, this is one of the reasons why I love mobile. And as bandwidth gets simpler, like these devices will allow access to information from all kinds of places. And so hopefully that the information that's absorbed is accurate and true information and that people learn the important things and apply them. But again, as with all these technologies, you know, we're, we're still in training wheels. In one of the talks that I watched of yours, you concluded it by saying, quote, I hope I've left you a little bit unsettled and confused because that's the way we have to be these days, fully on our toes. It seems that the trend in the last, let's say, four years or so has been that nobody's allowed uh, to go outside of their comfort zone anymore. Do you find it's harder now to interview people? to talk about big ideas, to talk about innovation, when you have essentially everybody so scared of that feedback or criticism loop coming back at them? Oh, that's, that's a great question. I don't know that it's harder to interview them. It may be harder to get meaningful feedback and information from them. I, I think what I try to do when I'm interviewing people is find the ways and the areas where they can be more candid. And, and, and also at the same time, for me to become as conscious as I can about my own prejudices, predilections, like missteps, there, there is a lot of political correctness about not offending and some of that squelches dialogue. Some of the dialogue that it squelches should be squelched. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult line. I think these pendulums tend to, to swing back and forth. I, I, I think, you know, being understanding of that is part of what the country needs to be able to work through these times. This isn't, this isn't really wh where your question was, but I, I, I'm compelled to, to go there a little bit. Like, there's a divide in this country right now that's wide. And I believe that part of the culprit is the incredible technology that I have extolled and love and talk about and believe there is so much promise in. And I think that's because that, Technology represents a future that is leaving some people out and leaving a lot of people behind. And that many of the folks who are the beneficiaries of this technology are not necessarily putting all the effort they could into helping those who are left behind. And, and it's not just a digital divide issue. It's you ran a store in a small town and now 
you know, people are buying things on Amazon and Amazon is great. And you may even use Amazon more than the store next door, but how are we helping those folks who are being put out of business and the role that truck drivers play in many small communities of being the, you know, the big earners that support families and communities. And when they are replaced by autonomous vehicles, what happens to those communities? You know, that's just one example there. I just think, and I ask this question of technology leaders and CEOs all the time, what responsibility do you have, do those of us who are beneficiaries of technological uh, advance have in helping those who are left out and left behind um, be part of this future world? And I'm not always um, satisfied with the answers that I get. I just wish that, you know, I, there, there are a lot of resources at a lot of these big tech companies that could go towards building products that would help and integrate a lot more people into this economy of the future. And those may not be the highest margin uh, investments. And so they're not always made. And that, 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 is a, that is a frustration. We really need to think of equality and accessibility in our culture, in our country, and in our healthcare. And I keep going back to love. I know it's a touchy-feely thing to talk about, but all these things come out of love. And the amount of social planning now that all these uh, hospital systems and healthcare systems have done, now they're all saying, on a very optimistic note here, um, bring on the innovation, because that's what they've been doing for months now, and they're open to it. And this is allowing for a whole new place for us all to be, maybe to build better equality um, healthcare and care in all our lives. Well, I hope that's true. I hope that momentum stays and it, and it builds. I think, you know, there are a lot of financial incentives in place that have hospitals compete with each other instead of collaborate. There's a lot of data that could be shared that isn't. I know there are privacy issues related to that, but, you know, those are things that can be managed if you want to manage them. As I say, like you talk to doctors and nurses and researchers and you know the vast majority are are filled with love i mean to to dedicate your life to go in and say i'm going to spend my day taking care of people who have covid i mean that takes tremendous empathy and courage and commitment and love right love for people you don't know we can all learn something from that and if systemically, we could apply that same philosophy. I hope we could get to much better outcomes and much better lives for all of us. People are still going to get sick. People are going to get sick and they're going to die. And that is the reality of the human condition. But we can make our time together richer we can make those experiences of pain less painful, and we can treat each other in the process of going through all that more humanely and more warmly. And um, I applaud you guys for doing this podcast because I believe in this mission, and I hope folks listening are inspired in whatever ways they can to help advance it. Well, thank you. Wow. Uh, that's, that's amazing, Bob. And uh, it's been a joy to have you on Care by Design. 
Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast of Care by Design with Eric Corey Freed and me, Eve Blossom, as your hosts. We look forward to our next interview this upcoming Tuesday. Visit us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Care by Design Pod. And there you can see additional show notes of each of our podcast interviews and additional posts on new podcast interviews. So tune in this Tuesday for our next Care by Design podcast. Hear us then.